Welcome back to Medic Minutes, the BC Emergency Health Services podcast for paramedics. I'm Gord Meineker, a primary care paramedic from Vancouver Island and a UBC medical student. I'm Kayla Richardson, a respiratory therapist and UBC medical student. Kayla, it's been a, a long week. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like there's information coming left, right, and center. And I feel honestly very thankful to the organization that they're putting out so much information and being so open in their communication with us. Absolutely. At the same time, it all gets overwhelming quite quickly. Kayla and I sat down this morning to assemble a podcast to review all these clinical changes that have happened in the organization since the COVID pandemic started. And it's insane. We quickly both became very overwhelmed. Very overwhelmed amongst uh, other things. We wanted to put out a podcast that would be really helpful for everyone out there on the front lines, everyone working. Um, And hopefully we can review all of these changes. There are a lot of changes. So we're going to do our best to go over them in an audio format so that you can listen to them while you're driving to work um, or while you're in a cab and uh, hopefully we can be of help to you guys out there. And I just want to say too, I really appreciate all of you guys' survey responses. We, we, we're literally looking at them right now and uh, we're going to try and tune the length of these episodes and the content. There's some really good ideas for future topics like things like CRM, resource allocation, complexity management tips, um, a review of practice changes, um, So we're going to try and keep this episode short. It's going to be high-level overview stuff. And um, we hope that in uh, future episodes, we'll do maybe longer discussions about kind of why all these clinical changes happen. For now, we're going to try and do a down and dirty. Uh, If you have been completely out of the loop for the last week, we'll review everything you need to know for coming back to work as a frontline paramedic. In case you missed that, the information that we're receiving from people are is via our anonymous feedback survey, which you can find on the BC EHS handbook. So if you have any ideas about what we can improve, any ideas about what we've been doing well, um, or ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you, good or bad. And I uh, would appreciate you guys clicking that link and taking the time to fill out our survey. Yesterday, we released a podcast on uh, personal protective equipment and paramedic safety, which included a discussion of cleaning the ambulances at the end. We've made a change to our answer in response to what PPE is required for cleaning the ambulances. So have a look in the show notes and we'll link back to that podcast from yesterday. A new version has been uploaded and will be trickling down through the platforms and you'll be able to read in the text show notes of that podcast episode what uh, the latest direction is from infection control. So today is March 26, 2020. And the reason I keep saying the date is because I feel like this is so important. This is an ever evolving situation. This is a clinical summary of every change that we've made to date as of March 26, 2020. But of course, if you're listening to this, uh, even tomorrow, or over the weekend, or next week, make sure to go and check the handbook or look for more recent podcasts. So we're going to break this first into uh, into two sections. First, we're going to go over just everything logistical. In our second section of this episode, we'll discuss everything related to airway management, which is actually the large majority of all these clinical practices. And we hope that by the end of today's episode, we've kind of given you a good summary of all the, of almost all clinical changes to date. 
Kayla, let's start uh, going through some of these logistics here. So first of all, all calls are infectious until proven otherwise. We're no longer taking calls specifically as an ILI weight. All crews need to assume that just all calls could be infectious and making their own risk assessment. There will be information on the CAD about some of the infection risk that may be relevant to your call. Along those lines, there has been a doorway assessment that has been put out by the organization. We'll have links in the show notes to this assessment. It's basically at two meters of length from contacting any patient. And in the absence of any other symptoms on the CAD that you find concerning, then you are to ask the following questions. Do you have cough, fever, sore throat, fatigue, difficulty breathing? Does anyone in the house have these symptoms? If not, you can proceed with a call using whatever PPE you feel appropriate. Um, if they answer yes to any of these questions, we basically are asking all occupants in the room to leave the area. Uh, if someone has to say uh, surgical mask on them, perform hand hygiene on yourself and the patient and on PPE in the way of gowns, mask, face shield, and gloves. Transports of those patients should occur, should occur with surgical masks on the patient as tolerated and limiting family and escorts during these transports. There's been a suspension of two trials in particular, the Frontier trial and the ECMO ECPR trial. So those will be postponed until further notice. There was a safety update released earlier this week saying that the slider compartment between the cab and the box of the ambulance should be closed during all patient transports. We also released a podcast earlier this week, all things related to personal protective equipment. There are podcasts and educational videos for these resources, and we will put them in the show notes. There were a few reminders this week that there's going to be a difference between hospital guidelines and BCEHS guidelines in terms of clinical practice, in terms of personal protective equipment and safety. And just a reminder to follow the BCEHS clinical practice guidelines. There, there is a reason why our environment is different than the hospital setting. And there's a reason why we have our own set of guidelines and these are to be followed. So for flight paramedics, there is a new checklist. So it's to be conducted between the pilots and the flight paramedics prior to each suspected or confirmed influenza-like illness call where PPE is required. And so have a look at the handbook uh, for that checklist, but essentially the main points are, is there enough PPE? So check your PPE, make sure that you're covered that way. Um, Make sure that you're positioning the patient and in any escorts um, optimally. Make sure that you're planning what location you're going to and considering, you know, helipads and weather conditions and uh, cleaning of the aircraft. So make sure that um, your aircraft can be cleaned at the patient destination immediately after you want to anticipate any kind of delays and other things to be considered like no eating um, during uh, the calls and um, the vent blowers will be limited to avoid the circulation of contaminated air. So have a look at the handbook and just make sure that you familiar familiarize yourself with those. There was a change this week that occurred in regards to contacting clinical. Uh, so in one of the EPCR updates, it may state to notify the paramedic specialist after screening of a COVID patient uh, in the EPCR. This notification to paramedic specialist no longer needs to occur routinely on all potential COVID calls. There was a change in telephone CPR instructions that are being released to the public. So 
Um, if a member of the public is instructed to provide hands-only CPR, an additional direction has been added to the advice which recommends covering the patient's mouth and face. One final note on the two-meter doorway assessment is that uh, additional questions and caution should also, also be applied when entering homes where patients may have home nebulizers or CPAP devices. And just a gentle reminder to give advance notification to hospitals with patients that you suspect or, or have confirmed a COVID infection. Give them lots of time to prepare. Just a quick note as well. Uh, there was discussion that happened today on March 26 about intranasal medication. By the nature of the delivery, these intranasal medications pose a real risk of aerosolization. Intranasal medication administration is now considered high risk and restricted to instances where only absolute necessary and as a last resort. If you are going to use intranasal administration of a medication, uh, it is restricted in any patient with signs, symptoms, or history of infectious flu-like illness or COVID. Full PPE, including N95, must be donned prior to any administration, and crews are encouraged to avoid any use in aircraft and, if absolutely necessary, ensure that pilots have donned PPE, including an N95. Stay tuned for further updates on um, safe options for analgesia. The second change that has occurred as of March 26 is the placement of carbon monoxide detectors. So there's been many questions coming forward about where do we put these carbon monoxide monitors while we're wearing PPE? Paramedics should consider alternate alternative locations that may not be ideal, but are better than covering the sensor. These include things like moving the CO monitor to the back of your belt to an open area not covered by the gown. Consider for the duration of the call, attaching the carbon monoxide monitor to a piece of equipment that will be with you during the response. Please do not attach the carbon monoxide monitor to your gown as this will increase the damage to the gown and complicates the doffing process. Please ensure that the carbon monoxide monitor is cleaned after the call with all your other equipment. So that's most things logistical. So just to recap some of those. So uh, there are some trials that are suspended. We need to assume all calls are infectious until proven otherwise. Minimize escorts in the ambulance and on aircraft. Close all the sliders between the ambulance cab and patient care areas. Have a look at the PPE podcast and educational videos that are out. Understand that there's going to be differences between hospitals and what the organization is putting out in terms of recommendations and that there's a good reason for this. Know your on-scene doorway assessment. We'll have links in the show notes. Be aware that telephone CPR advice to callers has changed, that intranasal medications are being restricted to unless absolutely necessary and with extra precautions, and that the placement of carbon monoxide detectors should be a consideration for when you're wearing your PPE. So, shall we move on to airway management practice updates? Yeah, so this will be more of the airway management and clinical practice updates summary to date. So there have been a lot of changes to airway management, and the main idea is to have a staged and minimal approach to interventions with patients' uh, airway. So this is because COVID-19 is primarily spread through droplet and aerosolization. There are certain airway procedures that can generate aerosols 
And these are considered high risk for the spreading of COVID-19. So this involves things such as high flow oxygen, nebulization of medications, suction, positive pressure ventilation, including the use of a BVM or CPAP, as well as intubation and superglottic airway insertion. So we'll be going over the specific recommendations regarding the use of devices and applying these interventions to patients. So we'll start with oxygen flow. Ideally, you want a flow of less than six liters per minute. It will minimize your risk of exposure. Flow rates higher than that may generate aerosols, and that's what we want to avoid. So target oxygen saturation of around 90%. And just to add on there, Kayla, it's the same thing that was released earlier this week. So if you are going to use a nasal cannula at six liters per minute, consider a surgical mask over top, depending on the clinical scenario and if it's appropriate for your patient. Perfect, yes. So there's also a restriction on nebulizers. So we're replacing them with an MDI and a spacer, ideally. Um, this is We went over this in our episode yesterday. So please, please have a listen or have a look at the handbook there if you have questions about how to apply an MDI. You're no longer giving nebulized epinephrine for croup. Um, so refer to the treatment guidelines for pediatric respiratory distress if you have a pediatric patient with croup. CPAP is being indicated only when absolutely necessary. It is an aerosol-generating medical procedure, and if we're going to use it, only with really good clinical judgment, consider discussing with clinical prior to doing so. In fact, PCPs are required to do that. And discontinue the CPAP when you're entering the hospital. So because nebulizers are no longer in use, um, indications for intramuscular epinephrine have been updated the threshold for administration of IM epinephrine has been lowered in order to provide further beta agonist therapy after treatment with MDIs in the absence of nebulizers. So patients requiring IM epinephrine will be those who have been given an MDI but continue to have moderate to severe symptoms and those symptoms are not resolving. Or if the patient's unable to inhale the MDI, likely due to bronchospasm um, or hypoxia. If they're just not able to take that MDI, um, give them IM epinephrine. And these moderate to severe symptoms include oxygen saturations of less than 90%. If you hear a silent chest or increasing bronchospasm, if you see the patient have accessory muscle use, or if they have increasing shortness of breath despite treatment with MDI, or if they have a decreasing level of consciousness. So if the patient is not improving, and deteriorating after treatment with MDI, you should call Clinical to discuss IM epinephrine before using it. So make sure that you refer to the BCHS handbook for pediatric and adult dosing of IM epinephrine. Intubation by advanced care paramedics and paramedic specialists is temporarily suspended in all circumstances in the pre-hospital setting at the moment. And anyone who needs emergent airway intervention will be managed first line with an eye gel placement. If there is a failed eye gel placement, refer to an OPA and two-person BVM technique with a filter in place. If the patient continues to deteriorate, consider front of neck access. An appropriate PPE is paramount to paramedic safety. Crews are encouraged to complete a patient safety learning system form if they believe patient care was affected as a result of not securing the airway with an endotracheal tube. 
And another reminder, if, uh, if you're ever presented with a patient or a situation where your care plan does not align with a current guideline, please call Clinical. They're there to support you during times like these. Critical care paramedics are still able to intubate with extreme caution. So please adhere to the best practices, and that includes things like full PPE, passive pre-oxygenation, which includes that flow of less than six liters ideally. So you avoid high-flow nasal cannulas because that increases the risk of aerosolization. And we also recommend an RSI approach as the primary strategy. And awake intubation is very high risk and not recommended. There's a document out on critical care paramedic mechanical ventilator best practices. We're not going to go into the details here, but we'll put a link in the show notes and it's available on the intranet. Just know that it's there. One really important point is to always protect yourself first. Make sure that you're clamping the endotracheal tube um, prior to any circuit disconnections. Make sure that your filters are clear and new and that you filtered everything that you can. In this context of not being able to intubate anyone in the pre-hospital setting, uh, there was a guideline, there was a recommendation put out around foreign body airway obstruction. So while laryngoscopy is definitely a high-risk procedure, um, foreign body airway obstruction is also a very rare occurrence. So we're recommending that ACPs wear full droplet precaution with an N95 mask and face shield if they come across a full foreign body airway obstruction. Uh, perform video laryngoscopy to increase the distance from the operator to the patient and use McGill forceps in a standard manner. An application of Entinox should be considered an aerosol generating medical procedure. So if used, paramedics should be wearing droplet protection, which includes an N95 mask and a shield. Make sure you use a new inline filter for each patient and instruct the patient to inhale through the mouthpiece and filter and exhale through the mouthpiece and filter to reduce the risk of aerosol generation. There were a few changes this week to CPR guidelines in the organization. So if a cardiac arrest is identified, it's important to don your PPE before commencing CPR and defibrillation. You need to get fully dressed in PPE before any resuscitation is started. Place a surgical mask or an oxygen mask at zero liters per minute on the patient prior to any chest compression starting. Initial resuscitation should be limited to defibrillation and compression-only CPR before airway management. So realistically, if there's two of you showing up on scene, this will look like you both gown up in PPE, a mask goes on the face, compressions are started by one provider while the other connects the defibrillator. Airway interventions must only be performed by the most experienced member on scene. When placing an eye gel, pause compressions. And when we say eye gels, we mean supraglottic devices generally. So King airways are also acceptable. The compression to ventilation ratio should include a pause in compression to allow for these ventilations. As always, please, please ensure that your filters are on your BVM and for ventilation with an eye gel. It's important in these cardiac arrests to identify and treat any treatable cause early on, as is always the case, and consider contacting Clinical early to discuss treatment options. Kayla, what should crews do if a supraglottic airway is not being utilized in a cardiac arrest? So if you're not using a supraglottic airway, you should maintain a good seal with a two-person BVM. 
Um, even when you're not actively ventilating, remember we want to seal the airway, reduce our risk of generating aerosols. You want to use low flow oxygen at six liters per minute or less. And you don't want to place a nasal cannula under the BVM because this will break the seal. Remember to pause your chest compressions to ventilate 30 to 2 and always, always ensure a filter is in place. Just to summarize these changes, if that's even possible, we're minimizing oxygen flow rates. All devices are less than 6 liters per minute and targeting oxygen saturations of 90%. No nebulized medications under any circumstances. Meter dose inhalers will replace all nebulized medications, and nebulized epinephrine for croup is no longer indicated. Use CPAP only when absolutely necessary and discontinue it when entering the hospitals. There's been a change to allow for a lower threshold of the administration of intramuscular epinephrine in asthma, so have a read of the guidelines to understand that epinephrine will be available earlier on in an asthmatic attack, and clinical should be consulted for all of these. There's no intubation by ACPs or paramedic specialists. Supraglottic airways will be first line. If supraglottic airways are not available, then a good two-person seal on the airway with a bag valve mask during resuscitation with a BVM and a filter and suctioning only when necessary. Crews should complete a patient safety learning system form if they believe patient care was affected as a result of not securing an airway with an endotracheal tube. Intubation can still be performed by CCPs under extreme caution, and there are guidelines out around mechanical ventilator best practices. ACPs can still use video laryngoscopy for foreign body airway obstruction, but with full droplet precaution. Antinox use, we need to really ensure that we're using a new inline filter for every patient and instruct the patient to inhale through the mouthpiece and filter and exhale through the mouthpiece to reduce any aerosol generation. We need to don our PPE before starting CPR and defibrillation, place a surgical mask over the patient before starting any chest compressions, and we're switching to 30 to 2 to allow for pausing of compressions while we ventilate. Kayla, that was a lot. Oh, that was a lot of information. So again, we're sorry that this podcast was uh, just kind of a blast of information. We hope that it's just a high-level summary for those of you who need it. Um, As always, there's more information in the handbook. We're going to have more podcast episodes coming that go further into detail as to, you know, why some of these changes happened. We'll try and really talk through cardiac arrest management in the context of COVID and what we can be doing in detail. We hope this episode can be a resource for you wherever you want to listen to it as a reminder of all these practice changes. Please let us know via email podcast at bcehs.ca or via our anonymous survey what you think of our episodes and what sorts of things would be helpful to you out there in the field. Give us ideas for topics or any questions you may have, and we'll do our best to address them on the podcast and send them to those that can answer. If you have any clinical questions, you can email clinicalpractice at bcehs.ca. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe and stay tuned. I think, are we? Oh, yeah, it's recording. Yeah, okay, all right. Ah, thanks. My avocado toast was delicious. Thanks for asking. Uh, I am now finished. Let's get started.